Hey, Tristan and Leslie, thank you for supporting the show on Patreon. As an independent show, our content isn't influenced by corporate interests. We find the people we think you should hear about because they're doing good things for all of us. That's the difference this show wants to make for you, our loyal listeners. If you believe we're doing the right thing and want to support us, please go to patreon.com backslash future hindsight. Sign up to become a member of our civics club today. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Sabil Rahman. He's president of Demos, a think and do tank dedicated to advancing an emancipatory vision of racial equity, economic inclusion, and deep democracy. He's also associate professor of law at Brooklyn Law School and co-author of Civic Power, Rebuilding American Democracy in an Era of Crisis. I've been curious about what it would take to build a more inclusive and empowered bottom-up democracy that would make our economy more equitable and our government more responsive. In this episode, we'll hear about what civic power looks like and how we can get there. Democracy is a radical concept, but also a really simple one. And it's really just about this idea that the communities that are most affected should be the ones that are most central to making the decisions. They're the real experts about what is happening in their own communities. And that's a very straightforward, simple idea, but it's actually really radical to put into practice because what that would mean is that we would completely upend how we make our economic policies in this moment to focus much more directly on black and brown communities, on workers. We'll be discussing good governance reform, power building, democratic institutions, and why real democracy actually puts decision-making power in the hands of the communities who are most affected. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with the basics. How do you define civic power? So I'm really glad we're having this conversation in this moment, right, because we're also seeing the tremendous organizing and activism happening on the ground. And I think that's relevant for your question, because a lot of times when we talk about democracy or governance or governance reform, we're used to thinking in terms of like making government more efficient, right, more transparent, more uh, kind of uh, more effective in, in executing its functions. But ultimately, governance really has to be about power. Who is actually making the decisions which groups, which voices, which constituencies have the ability to actually influence and shape what government does. And by calling the term civic power, what uh, Holly, my co-author, and I are really trying to push us on is to say that, look, you can have efficient government, but don't call it a democracy if it's not actually putting decision-making power in the hands of those communities that are most affected. Since we're in this time of really seeing these deep structural issues of inequality and disparate political power, how can everyday citizens think about building political power as a way to achieve better government and governance? When we talk about building power, especially as we think about what we can do, what people can do in communities, it's really important to think about sort of this two-pronged approach. One is 
how do we get more organized on the ground, you know, joining civic organizations, working with groups that are knocking on doors, organizing communities to have political muscle, right, to be able to actually exercise influence on politics from the bottom up. And at the same time, changing the mechanics of government so that there are more opportunities, more points of leverage for communities to then actually jump into the policymaking process itself. Right now, the movement for Black Lives in the U.S. is raising a big debate about how we reform policing in this country. And one of the central demands from Black and brown communities is about this idea of community control, meaning that if you're talking about policing or talking about local policymaking, you really need to have the actual voices from Black and brown communities have a seat at the table, right? Designing the zoning plan, helping design policies for public safety, and put those decisions in the hands of communities, not in the hands of bureaucracies that are not accountable or responsive. And I think that's a good example of what real tangible democratic power looks like at the local level. And you can imagine sort of variations of that at the national level as well. But it's really this combination of sort of people power on the one hand, and then institutional reform that puts people in the spaces where they can actually help design and craft public policy. It seems that the police is not behaving in a way that is more accountable. So what are we missing in this moment in terms of the organizing on the ground and the democratic institutions actually work together to hold the police accountable. When you think about the problem of police violence and specifically anti-Black police violence in the U.S., it's a good example of how different types of public input can be more or less powerful depending on how it's set up. So it's you know, one of the procedures that's been in place for a long time is a model called community policing, where local police departments will engage community members in neighborhood safety efforts to sort of create more participation and buy-in. But that's not actually solving the deep structural problems of police violence and police accountability. The kind of power that we're talking about here is something much more radical, much more transformative, where what we would really be talking about is uh, having community power in shaping the budgets of local cities and regions and states, right? The whole idea of defund the police, what that's really about is why should Los Angeles be spending half of its $10 billion budget on a policing system that is highly racialized when actually those dollars could be reallocated to other measures, social services, affordable housing, education that actually help communities and help improve public safety. That's a policy decision about how dollars are spent. It's a policy decision that is often outside of the hands of black and brown communities themselves, the most affected groups. If we're talking about real community control, real civic power, those are the types of decisions we'd want to put into a more democratic participatory process. Right? So I think policymakers often will react to social movement pressures by offering up some forms of engagement or consultation without actually changing some of these underlying structures. If you look at the police violence example, the demand isn't just to have more consultation with Black communities. The demand is to actually listen to what Black communities need by reallocating in a significant way how governments spend their dollars. Yeah, so this is a perfect segue into the idea of a participatory budgeting process. How does that work? And in what way does it actually empower citizens in participating in government? So participatory budgeting as an idea has 
its roots in Brazil in the 90s. And it was really a, a tool developed by a lot of grassroots uh, social movements, poor people's campaigns that was uh, trying to think through exactly this question of creating a process that, you know, in a highly complex area, actually put the people most affected in the driver's seat. You had kind of participatory spaces at the very local level, uh, identifying priorities and needs. You then had representatives that would meet at a citywide level to then allocate overall budgets. There were experts who would come in and brief the citizens, the community groups who are kind of driving this process, but the decision makers were still the groups themselves. The basic gist of it is that, you know, you create a structure that allows for representative decision making that is also more responsive and reflective of communities themselves. Now, that practice has since spread around the world, including in the US. And I think here's where uh, this focus on power becomes really important, because there are some versions of participatory budgeting that are not as powerful. It's one thing to have a couple thousand dollars or even a couple million dollars of flex funds that a neighborhood can weigh in on. That's very different from the municipal-wide people's budget that a lot of grassroots groups are now putting forward in the U.S. as uh, grassroots-driven alternative budgets for the whole city or the whole region. I think the other thing to name, too, is that it's not enough to just say, okay, anyone in the community who wants to participate can participate because, of course, we know that it's likely to be uh, more heavily resourced individuals and communities and groups, uh, wealthier and whiter communities that will participate more in those types of open-ended spaces. What you really need is a process that also provides the resources and does the explicit outreach and connection to black and brown communities to disrupt the racial disparity in participation and political power. Yeah, I think that one of the things that is misunderstood in general is that it's actually possible to build power if you are an everyday person. You know, you organize and build power. A lot of people just think, oh, I'm really helpless and I cannot have any access to the levers of power in any way, shape or form. As an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to build power? One of the most important things is to show up and join the tremendous grassroots organizing that is happening around the country. This is a moment where you're seeing a tremendous leadership and organizing prowess coming from black and brown organizers. And the other piece of it is looking for these opportunities to convert that on the streets energy into policymaking. Some of that is going to be electoral, right? We have elections coming up very soon in the U.S. There's a lot at stake in this election at the local level as well as at the national level. And so defending the right to vote and showing up to vote. But then there's also a lot that happens in between, putting pressure specifically on one's local elected representatives to mayors, city council people, state legislators, Congress people to respond to this moment of combined crisis of the pandemic and the economic collapse, I think looking for ways to join this moment of protest and movement organizing, and then to bring pressure to bear specifically on the decision makers demanding a shift in policy is, it will be really important. One of the things that we should be asking for in this moment is not just changes to policy, but changes to the institutions that create more power in the long run. And that's why ideas like community control are so incredibly important, right? Because that's a demand that's not just about 
one policy change today, it's a demand about changing the way we make policy tomorrow, right? Which creates more power in the future so that it doesn't take, like it shouldn't have to take this level of organizing and pressure to get some very basic things about safety and security changed, right? The fact that it takes this much pressure is an indictment of the existing political institutions. This episode of Future Hindsight is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show. I'm sure you've all heard me talk about him, but if you haven't checked out his show yet, go over there and give it a listen. As you all might have figured out by now, I love a good interview, which is exactly what Jordan delivers on his show. As any good interviewer will tell you, it's all about the questions you ask. Jordan finds ways to inform his listeners, humanize his subjects, and tell fascinating stories all at once. You may not have heard about his guests before, but by the end of the episode, you'll be an expert on whatever topic they discussed. And Jordan has a huge backlog of content to check out, so you can keep yourself busy. If you like Future Hindsight, I think you'll enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. Well, one of the things that really struck me in your book is that you look at real democracy as a radical notion. And now, of all times, of course, is the time to demand real democracy. If not now, then when? In your mind, how would you describe real democracy so that we can understand how we really should be thinking about power building and civic power? I think for us, democracy is, is a radical concept, but also a really simple one. And it's really just about this idea that the communities that are most affected should be the ones that are most central to making the decisions, the ones in charge, they're the real experts about what is happening in their own communities. And that's a very like straightforward, simple idea, but it's actually really radical to put into practice because what that would mean is that we would completely upend how we make our economic policies in this moment to focus much more directly on black and brown communities, on workers. What would it look like if the Federal Reserve was made up of folks with student debt, folks who had experienced racial disparities in the workplace, essential workers, you know, that's a very different type of decision-making body than, you know, the sort of um, uh, economist and banker alums that make up the Federal Reserve. And you could, you could say the same thing then about Congress, about state legislatures, you could say the same thing about city zoning boards. So concretely, I think it's, you know, institutionalizing this idea of getting the most affected communities in the driver's seat of making policy decisions. That's what democracy is. But making that real actually requires some pretty dramatic changes to our existing institutions. So how does Demos fit into this idea of building civic power and at the same time deepening democratic institutions on the government side? So at Demos, we're a think tank that works closely with grassroots movement organizations, really focusing on the intersections of racial equity, economic inequality, and democracy. We're working really closely with the kind of grassroots organizing groups that are working in black and brown communities in particular, really uh, identifying what black and brown communities really need to dismantle these uh, systemic forms of racism and economic inequality. We see our role as really being one of working in tandem with our partners on the ground to co-design policy ideas, to think through together what are the policies that would actually help communities most directly. 
and then to help bring those policies into the decision makers who would need to enact them. Uh, I think the last thing I'll say about this is that um, we're talking about really two different types of political power. One is sort of more familiar electoral power, making sure people can vote, making sure that we're fighting against the kinds of voter suppression tactics that are designed to keep black and brown voters in particular outside of political power. That's one big chunk of our work. Uh, and then the other big chunk of our work is imagining the new types of economic policies and institutions like what we were just talking about that would more directly create the kind of civic power we were talking about and dismantle systemic forms of racial exclusion. What is a policy that you're working on now that you're most excited about? There's a lot on our docket and we're in such a severe and devastating crisis of the economy and it's really a racial justice crisis like we talked about at the beginning. There's so much that needs to be done. It, it can be overwhelming at times. There are a couple of things in particular that we're focusing on. One is we're looking especially at the issue of debt and thinking about how do we ensure that if there's a new administration, that we're actually canceling student debt and moving from an economy that uses debt to extract wealth for the finance sector and create a more equitable economy and close the racial wealth gap by pursuing a, a debt cancellation policy. A second one is we're also doing a lot of work on the climate crisis. And you know, there's been a lot of tremendous organizing around this idea of a Green New Deal. And one of the things that we're really excited to work on is thinking through you know, what would the federal regulatory agenda need to be around climate that puts a tighter focus on working class, people of color communities that will bear the brunt of the climate crisis. And that means that a new administration is going to have to design its policies with that disparate impact in mind. So what would those regulations look like? How do we bake in racial equity and create more participatory levers for frontline communities to have a voice in those? And then a third thing is we're going to have to rebuild this economy from the ground up due to the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic crisis. This is already far worse than the Great Depression. If you look at the huge numbers of unemployed, the health and economic risks that so many workers are, are facing in this moment, this is really a time to be thinking about what would a more small-D, democratic, inclusive, and racially equitable economy look like? It's not enough to just try to put the pieces back to where we were before COVID hit or before Trump became president. And that's sort of more of a big picture question that I know a lot of folks are asking, but we're also, as a think tank, trying to play our part in helping imagine a more equitable and inclusive alternative economy. So tell us, what would a vibrant, inclusive democracy with a thriving economy look like? In your mind, what's the dream? So there's a couple of big things that need to happen. So first challenge is that there are a lot of systems in our economy that just need to go. They're sort of premised on fundamentally unequal, problematic, exploitative systems and relationships. So if you think about, you know, why is it that so many essential workers are having to literally put their lives at risk in order to keep food on the table while at the same time the stock market is at an all-time high. Well, that has to do with how labor and work and corporations are structured. They're structured to vacuum up wealth from mostly women and black and brown essential workers and channel that wealth to investors. And that's a bad way to run an economy. So there are some business models that we're actually going to have to dismantle. I think one way to think about this is there's no way to have an equitable economy in a world where a company like Amazon can continue to make 
insane profits, pay no taxes, and be monitoring and driving its workers so hard that they can't even pause to wash their hands during a pandemic when they're still being forced to work with no protection. That is just untenable. That's number one. Number two is we have to really invest a lot more dollars and resources in universal, inclusive public goods and public infrastructure. So if you think about, you know, why is our healthcare system so inadequate to this pandemic? Well, it's because we have a privatized healthcare system where we've been systematically defunding basic public infrastructure and public health, but also in education and also in the environment. We have to put a lot more dollars into those types of community needs and making sure that it actually reaches everyone in the community. So we have this pattern in this country of investing a lot more dollars in wealthier and whiter communities that have you know nicer public services, nicer schools, et cetera. We want to see an economy that has expansive public infrastructure, a lot of dollars going into especially the most marginalized communities. And then the third part really goes to the civic power example. For an inclusive economy, we need inclusive economic policymaking, right? So we need a way for the most affected communities to actually be in the driver's seat of making economic policy, implementing economic policy, and updating those economic policies. So that's where we get to things like, oh, who should actually be staffing the treasury or the Fed or the zoning board, right? The kind of day-to-day business of the economy and of policymaking uh, really has to be much more democratic and inclusive. And you know, all of this is doable. It's just a question of whether we're willing to do it. Well, I hope that we are. And the opportunity is now, right? I mean, if we're not going to rethink our economy in this moment when it's cratering and we have this huge disparity between the real economy and the stock market, actually, the people who benefit from a rocketing stock market are not the everyday people. It's totally true. And I think as we think about, you know, what does a democratic inclusive economy look like? Part of it is also like shaking up what we even think of our indicators of progress, right? It's got to be measured by looking at things like, uh, you know, what is the experience of the single black mom who is working as an essential worker and has to put food on the table for her kids? How is she doing? And if the economy is not working for her, then it's just not working. It's about changing our notion of whose health and whose well-being are we looking to as our markers of success. Wall Street's health is not a marker of success. The safety and security and flourishing of black and brown workers and families is a much different and I think much more equitable place to focus if we're looking at measuring our economic health and success. Right. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I'm an optimist by nature. I am really hopeful thinking about the kind of grassroots energy that we see in this moment. People have been talking about the the problem of anti-Black police violence, the problem of climate change, the problem of these structural inequities in the economy. These problems have been here even pre-COVID and pre-Trump. And a lot of the ideas, a lot of the solutions we're talking about, police abolition or a Green New Deal, a lot of these ideas have also been around for a really long time. And yet right now, these kind of bold, transformative ideas are front and center in a way they, they haven't been uh, in forever. And that's entirely because of the organizing and pressure from below that we're seeing uh, being driven by the movement for Black Lives, by the climate justice movement, by new forms of worker organizing that are responding to the, the deep need of, of this crisis. 
And that's, I think, incredibly powerful and inspiring, right? Because we're seeing grassroots groups, most affected communities themselves are building the kind of muscle and power that is now like wildly shifting the public narrative and the kinds of ideas that are now being taken seriously. And that is a hugely important shift that gives me a lot of hope for what could happen in the next few months and years. That's terrific. I'm hopeful too. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. Thanks so much for having me. While I'm hopeful about humanity in this moment of organizing and tremendous grassroots momentum, I'm also fully cognizant that past victories, like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, did not fully achieve their goals. Truly empowering our communities to be in the policy-making driver's seat is a radical departure from the way we have been practicing democracy here in America and will take a tremendous amount of political will. It is definitely possible, and perhaps this pandemic time will prove to be the difference between now and past efforts for a more equitable and inclusive society. All of us have to be engaged, we have to organize and pressure our elected representatives to demand a true democracy that is responsive and accountable to all citizens. Next week, our guest is Nick Tilson. He's president and CEO of NDN Collective, an indigenous-led organization dedicated to building indigenous power through organizing, activism, capacity building, and narrative change. They provide tools and strategies for indigenous self-determination and movement building. Tilson is a citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation. A big part of our work and a big part of our focus here at the Indian Collective, of course, is, is to build a collective power of Indigenous people by investing into the self-determination of Indigenous people. It really boils down to people that are directly impacted by the decisions in society are in the driver's seat of those decisions. We'll be discussing decolonization, the power of revitalizing indigenous cultures, languages, and traditions, as well as the UN Declaration on the Rights of the Indigenous People, and why recognizing it here would upend U.S. policy towards indigenous peoples and the natural resources on their rightful lands. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week.